Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Well, welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. I'm immensely honored to have as our guest and conversation partner today, uh, the Bishop and Reverend Dr. Brian Wallace of Christ Church Austin. He's also the founder and uh, executive director of the Fuller Center for Spiritual Formation uh, and, and somebody that I am honored to call a friend. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm glad to be here, Steve. Thanks for having me. Brian, when we started some conversations, oh, I don't know, I think it's been five years ago, you were just instrumental in helping me navigate some kind of core discernment issues in my own life. And one of those tools that you introduced me to was something that you called the central integrating question. Can you talk briefly about what that is and, and what it means and why it can be helpful? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks. So the central integrating question, or now what we call the calling question, was actually written by a guy named Todd Bolsinger, and we used it with students at Fuller Seminary, and I incorporated it into a spiritual formation discipleship to curriculum that we're working with um, with churches all over the planet. We're now on five continents and two languages, 3,500 people been in one in the last five years. Uh, but the, the question is this, that at at this point in your Christian journey, how do you envision your participation with God's mission in the world? And it's really important to identify a couple of key elements of that. And it starts with at this point in your Christian journey. It assumes that there's going to be change and fluctuation, uh, not only in your life and your situation um, and your station in life, uh, the kind of stage of life you're in. But it also assumes that there might be shift and change in your journey with Jesus. Mm. Obviously, we mature. We grow more convinced of the per, who the person of Christ is, more convinced in the scriptures. We learn how to grow in faith and trust. And we actually may put aside some old ways of being that are no longer part of our understanding of who God really is. So, for instance... As a young believer, I just had the sense that, you know, from the tradition I came from, that God would be more pleased with me the more work I did. Mm. And as I've matured, I've kind of moved away from that understanding that there's, you know, kind of learning not only intellectually, but emotionally, that God can't be more pleased with me than he already is, no matter what I do, because it's not about me. It's about him. And so we're talking about, you know, this point in our Christian journey, uh, how do I envision my participation with God's mission in the world? And so it's recognition that, so for instance, there might be changes in how we participate in God's mission in the world. That often happens for women as they become moms, because their life changes. Now, some moms are able to get childcare and they're they're able to continue in the vocational journey that they've been in but often finances don't allow that or situations in life don't allow that for some women and they they their their situation changes and so their question is how do they envision being a leader being an accountant being a creative person while also being a full-time caregiver or a mostly full-time caregiver to a little human right so how do they do that? How do they envision that way that takes place? Is it through prayer? Is it now uh, not through vocation, but through 
activity, hobby, investment, and others. And then it's always a recognition that all of our work is initiated by God. It's God's mission in the world. And we're simply joining him to take our part in what he's been up to. So that's the thing we're trying to do. It it, it engenders freedom and engenders, it recognizes that there's change that will happen to our lives and through our lives. Um, it gives us ability to say, because I may not be doing what I thought I was doing, it doesn't mean I'm doing anything wrong. Mm. And now we can just pay attention to what the spirit's doing in my situation right now. The person who's had the biggest spiritual influence in my life, kind of Doug Stewart, who, by the way, everywhere I go on the planet, there's someone who knows Doug and his wife, Marilyn, who's passed. And they just had this outsized influence on the kingdom through investment in people and leaders. But I was visiting him. He's in a, a assisted living home in the Chicago area. And he realizes this vital ministry that he's had of teaching, spiritual direction, care, leadership is reduced to prayer. So how does he envision his participation in God's mission of the world, given the limitation and the frailty of his body? So like, well, this is the way I'm able to participate. God's still at work. I'm not able to join him in the same way, but I can join him in a new new way through attending to people through prayer. So. That's incredibly empowering because I think there are a lot of people who, you know, maybe maybe they're leading, reading the scripture too literally. But like I think that the Levitical mandate was you could serve as a Levite between what twenty and fifty, and then that and then that was it. And I I love what you're saying, Brian, because it's a reminder that that God's call and God's ability to inspire and equip and move through us can flex around our life circumstances and and around around changes not just in our thinking but even our physical limitations as well absolutely and we have to recognize that even this kind of thinking is a little bit of a privileged way of being in the world you know our relative capacity financially and with education and all those other kind of things we may take for granted in say an American context or Western context is not true. You know, I had the privilege as a teenager to spend a whole summer in India. And some of those people that I met are just amazing men that I got to be on a team with for a little bit, but you know, they came from rice villages and their capacity to dream about their vocation was I have to be a rice farmer or I may not be able to stay alive. Hmm. And so the, the exciting thing is they still had dignity, right, as participants in the mission of God, because ultimately, whether we're a rice farmer or a doctor or a lawyer or a pastor or a bishop, whatever it is, we all have the same vocation to at one point, which is to make God known in the world, to participate with what God's doing. We all have the same call to care for the widow, the orphan, the refugee, the prisoner, the naked, the hungry. We participate in this kingdom thing that God cares about, which preferences the poor and preferences the needs of those around us. I can participate in that no matter what my job is, right? And by the way, there's massive dignity in that because those are the things that God cares about the most. And then for those of us who are privileged with this wealth and choice and education, we get this another opportunity, which by the way, with with this opportunity and privilege comes stewardship. We have to steward these opportunities of what am I going to do with these things? And we don't have to feel bad about the fact that we have these opportunities. We can just feel joyfully able to kind of receive them as 
God, what do you want me to do with this? How do you want me to participate with what you're doing? And I, you know, I'm not a fully reformed person, but I'm reformed enough to believe that, you know, we might think, hey, we picked our job, but I think the the spirit of God has something to do with that. To say, you know, I really want someone to be around Steve Norman because of the way he lives his life in Christ. And I want him as a little image bearer of the king of the universe to have an opportunity to know a neighbor, know a cubicle worker next to him or bump into someone at the bank, wherever it is, because that's how we are to inhabit our vocation as little images of God in the world to make God known in the very general way, but also in the very particular ways that God has made us. So helpful. Brian, what was it like in your own journey to shift from maybe a perspective where calling came with shoulds and oughts to where calling came with, with grace and gentleness? Was there, was there a turning point for you at any, at any stage in your journey that allowed you to think about calling with more generosity rather than in fixed and static terms? Yeah. And I, and I like your word generosity, Steve, because for me, the turning point came in learning how to be generous towards myself hmm. and compassionate towards myself. Uh, because in a, a lot of times I um, thought about vocation without the reality that I'm a frail human and that I'm a limited human. And that, you know, the, I kind of expected if, if I can, I should. Um, or even if I can't, I should be able to someday if I worked hard enough. Maybe that's because I'm a three Enneagram or because, you know, my high school musician in me taught me if I could just work hard enough, I could be first chair, which by the way, I was, <laughs> but only because I worked really hard at it and I enjoyed it too. But, but for me, the change came in moving from what was a fairly public ministry and kind of in a working through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and as a senior leader being part of lots of global conversations with global leaders. And then I took a job at a local church in Austin, and primarily, by the way, because my kids hit junior high and they, I, all three, three, I have three boys. And so my boys needed to have their dad's not on the plane all the time and just at home as they were adolescents. And so it was, that was a hard choice for me vocationally to realize, Hey, my responsibility as a dad trumped my sense of importance and value to a mission agency. And I need to walk away. But the even bigger piece was I went from this very public and very global ministry to a very local ministry. And that was at that church for seven years and at another church for 11 years. And it was interesting things. While I was in the university, I would regularly get calls. Hey, would you apply for this job? Or would you think about coming over here? Or would you speak over there? And in this 11 years, I was deathly anonymous. No one called me. No one asked me for anything. No one invited me to apply for jobs. I was like, God, are you done with me? Like, are you mad at me? Like, have I done something wrong? And I and I really had to learn that that's not the in in the character of God to do that. That's not the way the Father God works. But that what he invited me to was, am I content to say yes every day to Jesus to very small things? Because I was very content to go to India and lose my life for Christ. And by the way, almost did. You know, it was arrested a bunch of times and you know, stone for proclaiming the gospel and a plane crash, all these kinds of things. It was like these, you know, 
Pauline like stories. And I thought that's what was my the way I was supposed to live. And then when life got reduced to a few people right in front of me, it's like, Lord, where's my life going? It's like, are you not willing to say yes to loving this person? To proclaiming the gospel to these people, uh, to be present to this marriage, to be present to this child who is hurting and confused, to this homeless person who just wandered in and is needing help. And so I realized that every daily yes was a way of living out my vocation. And, you know, I think, you know, in John 17, Jesus even ends his life saying, I have completed the work you have given me to do. I've said, I've, you know, Jesus has said yes to, to God at every step. Hmm. And he, he even says, I don't say anything that God hasn't given me so to say. I don't do anything that the Father hasn't invited me to do. He simply says yes. And so that season was really important part for me to say, am I content with having a life of yes to God? No matter where it takes me. As long as, and it, and it got me to the point, it was like, you know, Lord, as, as long as I'm participating with your work, your of your spirit in the world, whether it's anonymous or no one's ever going to see except this woman who heard the gospel from me or this man who allowed me to proclaim the grace of God over their sin. Um, I'm, am I content with the yes? I'm like, God really worked. It took 11 years for me to get there. To say, yeah, I'm content. If I can, I'm, my life's okay, no matter where it goes, as long as I'm saying yes to Jesus. Yeah, so that's kind of what happened, and I can tell you what happened afterwards. But I'd love to hear that. Yeah, <laughs> as you know, I did a doctorate at Fuller, and by the way, that was another yes. Uh, it was in one of these radical things. We were just praying, Lisa and I, and listening to the Spirit. Hey, what what do you want me to do next? And the Lord really put on our heart that maybe I should pursue a doctorate, and we had no idea why. All my friends, and I can, you know, in a minute, I want to talk a little bit about the nature of community and discerning calling. But my friends were saying, we have no idea why you're doing this. Like, this doesn't make any sense to us. And I'm like, well, the Holy Spirit said to do it. I'm supposed to say yes. And my friends are like, isn't that an expensive yes? I'm like, yeah, I know. I don't want to spend $25,000 either. <laughs> Just that this invitation to kind of say yes to that. And in the middle of that, uh, the Lord really did something amazing. By the way, the Lord doesn't usually speak to me in dreams and stuff, but we were at one of my doctoral dissertation retreats. And the retreat leader said, hey, I'm supposed to ask, did anybody have any dreams last night? And I immediately knew. I had a small, simple dream that was kind of, I know God said something to me. I didn't know what he was saying. but And the dream was that I was being guided through a series of caves and I was in the last cave and the leader said, I'm going to lead you out and I will clothe you. So that was just sort of the sense of, hey, God was saying, hey, I've been part of this journey for the last 11 years. I know you've been hidden. And it's interesting that night I have dinner with a couple and the woman's, her last name in Spanish is translated cave. And she'd done this, all this work on cave spirituality and reminded me that in caves there in the Bible, there are places where people either hide from God or are prepared by God for something different. And the only two caves in the New Testament preceded resurrection, Lazarus's cave and Jesus's cave. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm like, this is really interesting. But then, and the next day I got three calls asking me to apply for jobs. Dead silence for 11 years and then three invitations, right? Um, and so one of them was Fuller, by the way. And so it was this opportunity to kind of like, okay, am I content with whatever God does? And then I, because I don't need it to be okay as a human, to be as okay as a son of God, now I'm free to kind of have this holy dis, uh, disengagement emotionally from what's going on in my life, free to hear God say, ask me to do anything. Now I'm free to say yes to stuff that may not make sense to me or feels scary, or I don't know the, the end result. And going to Fuller was a lot like that. Brian, it sounds like there's a lot of beauty in getting to a point where you don't need it or you don't want it or don't have to have it. How it's that sounds strangely liberating, but also counterintuitive for those of us who are trained in ministry models in the West that says it's only God if it's more and bigger and fancier and better. Yeah, we've been trained that bigger is better than big and biggest is better than bigger. <laughs> and and we we use a worldly metric of defining those bigger and biggest things in our life. Um, and when Jesus said and watched a widow put a mite in a box and said, oh, that was great faith. We don't actually believe it. <laughs> we, you know, we don't want to do small things with love and with obedience. We want to do great things that we can tell stories about. And I think it's until we are content with a life of yes to God that we're constantly going to be fighting. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to miss God's will because he uses people who are stuck on themselves all the time, including me, right? right. <laughs> and that's a good that's a good news of the kingdom is that he uses people like us who are a mess. And recently, you know, um, it's, I've been reflecting on the disciples. They were a mess. They all denied Jesus. And yet they turned the whole world upside down because they were inhabited by the Holy Spirit who invited them to say yes to things that didn't make sense to them. Hmm. You know, and, um, and but the, the exciting thing is, you know, someone reminded me of this painting of Paul walking through a village and his shadow is healing people. Like, how do you hold, live with that identity? It's like, even my shadow heals people. It was because that wasn't his identity. His identity was a redeemed, forgiven denier of Jesus. This massive event in his life where he's like, he encountered so powerfully the goodness and forgiveness of Christ. It's like that became his whole identity. That yes was just part of that love relationship he had with the God of the universe. And so... I feel very loved that I was invited by God to be in a cave for 11 years because it invited me into a relationship with him as my primary place of identity, not what I do. Was there, was there a moment or a season that like allowed you to finally receive and surrender to it? Or did it kind of come and go in waves? Was it, was it a, a daily battle or was it hard for the first seven years? And then you flipped the switch at year eight and you were good. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, it, uh, it's always a battle, right? You know, and, and let me just say, I think we take our 
these brokennesses that we get from our childhood, we take them with us everywhere we go. Yeah. And we, you know, but my friend, Marilyn, I already mentioned Marilyn, Marilyn Stewart. She would often say that um, maturity isn't the absence of sin. It's noticing it faster. Hmm. So I still wrestle with, am I important? Am I doing something significant in the world? Am I living to my fullest potential? Um, and then maturity for me is like, oh, there it is again. Let's surrender that. And let's stay in whatever God's next yes is for me. And I have to do that deliberately. Even today, you know, I bring get, this is another way it manifests. So a friend of mine who I've known a long time called up and said, hey, I really need to talk to you. And we need a place that's private because I got to say some things that are pretty intense. And I immediately thought, oh, this person's really upset with me. And it had nothing to do with me. We visited. They wanted to talk about their relationship with their spouse. And they wanted my you know, input into this thing. But this child in me, this brokenness in me, this fearful person in me, always assumes someone's mad. Yeah. And so maturity for me is like, will I ever be free of that? Well, I hope so. But my responsibility is not just to always try to be free of it and be mad at myself that I'm not free, but just notice it faster, submit it to Christ and say, hey, hey God, there it is again. Yeah. Can you help me with it? And can you help me be present no matter what this person says? So Brian, where did the doctorate end up coming in handy or did God, was God just abused <laughs> by watching you waste, you know, five years and $25,000? That's a really, really funny thing. You know, so this work that I got to do in the dissertation that I wrote was all about spiritual formation. And this is an unusual, and this is not a a story that other people should try to emulate because <laughs> it's impossible, right? Don't Where, try this at home. <laughs> you know, I, I got to write a dissertation that turned itself into a ministry program that turned itself into a center at one of the best seminaries on the planet. So now called the Fuller Center for Spiritual Formation. And so that was not my intention. That was not my imagination. That was not my imagination that we'd be on five continents in two languages and serving all these people, right? My intention was, how do I say yes today? You know, I there was times where I thought the dissertation is not happening. I think I've told, remember in the middle of it, I talked to you, Stephen, like maybe I should just quit. I'm not smart enough to get this done. <laughs> and the next yes was sit at your computer, read the documents, read the books, write some stuff. I had, I had to be obedient to, God said to do this. God made it really clear that I was supposed to do this. My wife thinks I should do this. I'm going to say yes to today's work. And I had no imagination where it was going. And so, and I would say, you know, now I'm leading a diocese with, you know, co-leading with this other bishop with 68 churches, a couple hundred clergy. We think that's going to continue growing. There's no way I can do that work without having learned what I did in the doctorate, but also without what I've learned in eight years of en enacting a global ministry among churches. You know, my job in the last number of years is coaching pastors and churches. Hmm. Um, now, the interesting thing is I was coaching them and they were my clients. Now they're my people. You know, I'm, I'm no, I could fly away from the church before and not be implicated by what was going on. Now I'm implicated. <laughs> they're, they're, their pain is my pain now in a, in a very unique, different way. But I think that was, you know, I didn't have any imagination for that. That was just the next yes. 
Brian, what do you say to people who feel like they're in that cave season now, or maybe they had a dissertation type moment two years, four years, 12 years ago, and they're still not sure what it was for. What, what do you do to people who are in that space? That's a really hard one because, you know, my story is the, is the outlier, right? Mm -hmm. I, don't, I actually don't think I have that unique gift set. I'm not smarter. In fact, I, I have five siblings. I don't, I think I'm the least intelligent of the five. Um, you know, I'm, I don't have amazing gifts as a preacher or communicator. I have some pretty great intuitive leadership gifts and some shepherding gifts. Those are my two. I'm a pastor and leader. You know, the truth is God doesn't love me because more in my position now than when I was seeing my primary vocation as loving junior high kids in my family, you know, and which is the most impactful ministry that I've had? Probably loving my kids, trying to love my kids, asking forgiveness of my children. People ask me, I have two of my pastors, all, all three of our kids love the Lord. Two of them are pastors. Uh, the other one who's not a pastor is an amazing person. Uh, walk, you know, one of the most generous, kind, loyal people I've ever met. And people are like, how did you do that? I'm like, I asked forgiveness. <laughs> you know, because I was such an imperfect father and knew that I just needed to have a real relationship with them. So that's probably the most important work I've ever done in my life most transformational in my own life and family. So it's the, the what I would say to the person who is in that cave or is doing all the best they can, who's like, you're never not seen. Love that story of Mary and Martha. Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha's complaining. Why are you letting, you know, her not help me? Why do I have to do all the work? And, you know, one of the things I think Martha could have done in that moment and saying, instead of complaining and being competitive, she might have had the opportunity to say, Jesus, tell them, just tell Jesus the truth. Jesus, I'm afraid I'm missing you. I, For whatever reason, it was her night to cook. <laughs> Sometimes it's just our night to cook, and we can't sit at Jesus' feet, right? Um, but she was like, I'm afraid I'm going to miss your will. I'm afraid I'm going to miss your teaching. I'm afraid I'm not going to become who you want me to be because I have to cook in the kitchen. I'm going to miss some gold that Mary's going to get. And I think if she had said that, Jesus could have assured her, look, you're never going to miss me. You're never going to miss my will because I love you too much. I see your life. I see what you're doing. I know all about it and I'm delighted by it. And I think Jesus ultimately, in his own way, invited Martha to just be at rest. I see you working. And I, you're not overlooked. I care about you. 99.9% of us, percent of us will pass from this world and no one will know we were there 100 years from now. There's no cup of cold water given to the poor that's missed. There's no small act of faithful love to Jesus that's missed. You know, the greatest person I ever knew was my grandfather. Sixth grade education in upstate Vermont. He was a dairy farmer. But he spent the last parts of his life taking care of mentally and physically handicapped people, disabled people. And he just gave them dignity. You know, 
visiting him was a little odd. I, I went and hung out with him once and he was in a barn painting a brand new chair, like a kitchen chair. I said, Grandpa, what are you doing? It was like, Charlie likes scraping paint off stuff. And we ran out of stuff for him to scrape. So he was doing this crazy work. And he said, here, take that wagon, go to all the farms next to us and get all their screws and nuts and random bolts. I'm like, okay. He goes, because Steve loves sorting stuff. And we ran out of stuff for him to sort. And there was two other guys whose job was, they, they, they ran this massive building on a wood stove in upstate Vermont, right? And so there's stacks and stacks of cordwood all over the place. And so their job was to move the cordwood to the front of the house. And when it was done, they moved it back. It was like crazy making, but they knew they belonged and they were contributing. And these were people, you know, who didn't have the... Um, you know, mental capacity of a third grader or something like that. They were, but they were lovely people that my grandfather gave dignity to. He gave them place and belonging and joy. He gave them work and vocation. And it's like, I think my grandfather far exceeds any work I will have or will ever do. Hmm. I'm way more educated. I get to get way more notice. You know, I get, I have four names, the right Reverend Dr. Brian. He was just Steve. And his life was transformative to all the people around him. Because he just said yes to Jesus every day. And I love that because that's an act of worship. That's an act of love. That's an act of surrender. And I think that on my worst days, I get caught being transactional with God, right? Like mm -hmm. I'll, I'll do these things and I'll give these things. And when I do, I expect, you know, these things on this timeline and, and God's not, God's not obligated to bend to ours and doesn't not because he's trying to spite us or shame us, but because he wants to give us something greater than what we can imagine or have open hands to receive. That's right. Now, all that said, it, there's nothing wrong with working hard on asking the question and trying to discern, Lord, what do you want me to do with this life? You only have one. What's, what's the yes you have for me? Um, how do I steward this education, intelligence, finance, um, the family that I've come from? How do I take all of that and turn it into your glory? That's a great question. And some of us are going to do that by becoming doctors or lawyers or moms or bankers or tennis players or whatever it is. And we can say a joyful yes to that, knowing we're in the center of God's will. And a lot of people ask me, how do I discern that? And now I think starting with your passions is the wrong place. Because most of us are not mature enough to not run, let our passions run away with us. Hmm. You know, my passions were in ministry, but because I really wanted to be famous when I was 20, <laughs> you know, so that wasn't a good place to start. But one of the things I would say is start with community. Um, one of the things that we have a tendency to do is lie to ourselves, but our community, if they love us, won't lie to us. And so it's been really fun to see a community come around someone and say, this is who you really are. I know you want to be that, but this is who you really are. Or yes, you really are that. So for instance, I've seen some preachers, um, really gifted preachers, where a community said, 
hey, dude, when, when you open the Bible and talk about it, God comes alive to me. And I really understand the scriptures in a way that's really helpful. I think you really need to do this. But what happens when a community tells a pastor with that kind of gift that, well, then that, that ability to preach is a gift he's received, not a possession that he then wields. Because by the way, all of our gifts end up going away. And if we're owned and defined by this thing, like preaching, when it stops, we can't live with ourselves. We, where do we go? Who who are we? Yeah. You know, my grandfather, excuse me, my, my stepdad is an amazing person. My dad was an admiral in the Navy. He passed away when I was 16. And my mother married another person who was an admiral. And he's an amazing human being, um, loves the Lord but he's now 89 years old and all of his admiral capacity is starting to not be there. So who is he if he's not an admiral? Well, he's a dearly loved child of God. And so we can't be defined by what we do. We have to be defined by our relationship with God. So when our when we're told by a community, this is who you can be and receive, we can receive it open-handedly as a gift. And lean into those things for that time being. And then when they stop being who we are, we're still okay. But it's easier to hear in a community who we really are. Because, you know, for instance, for me, when I became an Anglican, th that was the third time I was ordained. Hmm. But, the, but it meant so much more in my life because it was the first time a community discerned that I was set apart and called by God. We had a parish discernment committee that said they examined me, spent six hours in conversation and prayer with me and then said, yeah, you're set apart to do this. And the first two ordinations, I signed my own ordination certificate because I was in charge of it in those spaces. Okay. <laughs> and so in, when I became, you know, in a varsity staff at 22 years old, you know, it was kind of a self-directed, I'm going to do this. Right. And the gift of a community naming us, seeing us for who we really are, saying, hey, this way that you are the image of God is beautiful. And you should be that. Yeah. No matter what that is. Maybe it's as a painter, as a gardener, or, you know, someone who takes is a farmer, whatever it is. Hey, that's a beautiful thing. And we need our community to name the beauty in us. And it, it's so much easier to be who God called us to be when a community is around us saying, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Go, Steve, go. We love it when you're like this. And it's easier to believe it over the long term when it comes externally than when it's something that we drum up within ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. So good. Well, yeah, go and ahead. so I would say this too. So that you know, studies say that the average high schooler now is going to ha not have one career, but maybe four or five careers. Hmm. Now, the interesting thing is there probably will be some coherence of how they inhabit those careers. Does that make sense? So one of the things we should do with our communities is is look for the way we inhabit it. In that calling question, it's how do you envision? So a lot of times it's you know for me. In every role or job that I've had, I've always shown up as a pastor leader. Not primary. I teach some, but that's not my best gift. My best stuff comes when I'm leading and shepherding. And so 
oh, that's who I am. Now, I couldn't have named that when I was 25, but I'm paying attention to the coherence. The people that are in my life who know me the best say, that's who you are when you come alive and when you image God best. So we can look for that coherent, who am I? My friend Amy Drennan, for instance, you, you, you know Amy, I think. You know, the way she identifies in this thing is she shows up as a coach all the time. She's been a marriage family therapist. She's been a seminary professor. She's been, you know, an university staff person. But she's, no matter what role she has, spiritual director, she's, she shows up as a coach to some. That's how God made her. And that's the way she images God in the world. And that's a beautiful thing. And so kind of knowing some of that. But she's discerned that over time and in community. That's so good. Well, Brian, you've given us so much to think about. Thank you so much uh, for sharing of your insight and your encouragement and your reflection. Uh, I know it's been uh, a helpful frame for me, and I'm confident that it's going to be the same for others. Thanks, Steve. It's really good to be with you. Likewise. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.